Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're coming from our studios in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. And I'm particularly uh, happy and excited about today's show because it represents really a homecoming, a Michigan homecoming for uh, Ian and I. And, uh, you know, we travel all over the world, but uh, to do a show about my home state is uh, tremendous for me. From our roots in southeastern Michigan, Detroit, Ann Arbor, go blue to mid-Michigan. <laughs> I knew you were going to get that in there. And West Michigan, Macosta County, we celebrate the state and the people who shaped us and our country. First up on today's show, we head to West Michigan to introduce you to the descendants of the old settlers, African Americans who came from the southern and eastern United States to settle in Macosta County, Michigan, for a celebration of family and history. Then we head across Michigan to Metro Detroit, where we make a stop at the Henry Ford and Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan, where the history and ingenuity of America is on display for all to see thanks to the vision of Henry Ford. Finally, we take a step back into history into what it was like to live the life of an auto baron as we visit the home of Henry Ford's only child, Etzel, who along with his wife, Eleanor, built one of the greatest homes in America and raised a family there. We'll head just east of Detroit to Gross Point, Michigan and visit the Etzel and Eleanor Ford house. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. Hey, and don't forget, you can connect with us during the week on our social networks and also sign up for a newsletter from our website at worldfootprints.com. Every summer, the descendants of Michigan's old settlers, a group of 12 African-American families, including mine, who settled in West Michigan in Macosta County in the 1860s, come together to celebrate family and history at School Section Lake in Macosta County. We catch up with Dick Mackey, my uh, pseudo-uncle, whose grandmother's family, the Letts, were descendants of Jemima Banneker, the sister of Benjamin Banneker, designer of Washington, D.C., and we learn why this gathering is so meaningful. My, uh, my history goes back to the Harper and the Crosses and uh, the Letts. My grandmother, uh, Kathleen Lett, was born in Remus. My mother was... Geraldine Rice was born in Remus. Uh, my grandfather, Raymond Rice, was born in Remus. Uh, I was born in the Upper Peninsula at that time in 1940, but I grew up coming up to the picnics back in the 50s, and I've been coming ever since. Now all my children come up, and uh, one of the reasons I come up is to see the old friends. Uh, after growing up with the men and women up here from 19, say, 55 on, for the last 55 years, you really uh, come to love them as brothers and sisters, actually. And every year we have uh, a gathering of what they call the Old Settlers Reunion. And people responsible for putting it on changes every two years. Lansing's done it last year and again this year in 2010. And next year 
all of the family from up north here and uh, around the cost of Remus will put it on for two years. Then it switches to the families in Grand Rapids that put it on for two years. And then it swings around to Detroit. The families that settled and live in Detroit will put it on for two years. So, but it's always held here. But it's always held here uh, at School Section Lake. And sometimes uh, different people will come and spend the whole week or weekend right here on the, at the facility at the lake. And other times people just drive up for the day. But it's always a fun time. Old settlers not only brings together family, but friends like Dickie and my dad, Lonnie Johnson, as they reminisce about the good old days and tell us a lot of good old lies. Well, this is Lonnie Johnson, a very dear friend, the man that first befriended me when I moved to Lansing in 1950. We happened to meet at Friendship Baptist Church. And his story goes as uh, he saw me sitting in... Uh, Found out who I was, and since uh, I was a church-going young man, he thought that uh, I might make a good, good chump for him. And, and we've been, we've been, we've been partners ever since. Yep, yep. And we used to burn up the highway, come up here to uh, Remus Macosta area, and coming to Old Settlers was a ongoing activity each year. It's been a few years since I've been up here, but we used to have a lot of fun coming up here, coming up. McCoss and Remus in the middle of winter with parties. Snow six inches deep, 12 inches deep. We're coming up here for a party, but uh, we managed to survive it. So we've had, we've had a lot of fun together and been friends for, oh Lord, I guess what? Good over 50 Learning years close, or so. Yeah, yeah. Over, over, over 55 years. Yep. Way yep. over. We used to caddy out to the country club together when we were in high school. Went to school together. Yep. Yep. And so Old Settlers really is not only just a family reunion of the 12 families, but it's an opportunity to see old friends. Old friends, yes. Old friends, yeah, because I'm not directly related to a lot of the folks. Some, but not many, but I've got a lot of friends up here that we grew up with as teenagers. And this always gives me an opportunity to make connections with folks I haven't seen in years. And renew memories and have laughs about the past. Tell lots of lies. Yeah, yeah. And the truth. Yeah. Thank you. That, that sounds better rather than lying. We never lied. Never, we just, never. Old Settlers is about history as much as it is about fun. In May 1861, James Guy was the first documented landowner to settle in Macosta County with 160 acres to his name. One of his descendants, Arlo Guy, recounts some of the remarkable history of the old settlers who came to own land in Macosta and neighboring counties. All four of my ancestors uh, from all four sides of my family were old settlers. The guys, the Tates, the Squires, and the Pointers. The old settlers came to Montcalm, Isabella, and Macosta County back after the Civil War, uh, 1868, 1869, and later. 
many of them come from from Ohio, from the Zanesville area. Uh, some came through Canada for freed slaves. Some of her ancestry goes back to Virginia. Uh, some of the early settlements. Uh, My grandmother, who was a squire's, um, she lived to be 103, and so she knew me and all of my kids before she passed. Um, and she recalls when she was five years old, they were coming by wagon train with oxen, and she could remember uh, walking out beside uh, the wagon, you know, getting exercises as a little girl to break the monotony. Uh, they settled in the Melbrook area, uh, which is in Macosta County. And, uh, and she married Lovejoy Tate, who the Tates were among the first families that came here um, with the crosses, the Tates. Um, I can't think of the other two families that came with that bunch, but um, they they all settled in um, Isabella or Macosta County. Um, but other families settled in Montcalm County, which is just to the south of here. I heard many stories of some of the things that happened when they got here, and it was dense wood, and uh, they put up log cabins. And starting, they just had these uh, shanties or something. And, uh, my grandma remembers going out and chasing wolves off the top of their their, their shanty. Well, way back in the 1860s or shortly after that, they used to have what they called pioneer picnics. And then it kind of died out. Then in 1934, um, Arthur Cross. Uh, Leslie Guy. Um, there was two or three others that started the old settlers, and it has continued to the present day. I believe they are. There was kind of a lag where nobody wanted to do anything. And uh, now I think they're getting more involved. I know this year the Lansing group uh, had the organization of the picnic and 
they had good uh, results with younger people turning out. Do you know why the families came to West Michigan originally? It was free land, and they could they could settle here. Um, we had a See, 150 years in Isabella County, and uh, there's a couple of us, Marvin Led, uh, three of us, I think, from this group that got uh, awards for what they call first families. We had to document that the families were here prior to 1900, which was very easy for me because we had census and I had an uh, overview of the land that was here in uh, 1889, and my ancestors, my grandfathers, had land here that showed back then. Have the families been able to keep the land in the family? Uh, Most of it has has been passed on, and. Uh, in my case, my brother still has the land that, um, part of the land that my father and mother had, which was owned originally by my grandfather. Um, I think indirectly we do uh, through the Let's Settlement reunion down in Ohio. Um, I understand that the original uh, guy was a personal friend of Benjamin Banneker. And uh, there, was, there was connections, but... I think they were very slim at that time. Three, two, one. The 12 families. I haven't heard anyone mention the 12 original families in one, uh, in one setting. I'm, I'm not certain about the, who all the 12, but I know the, the guys, Tates, uh, Crosses, Berries, which this particular piece of land here with the Berry Homestead, where this park is. Um, there was Todd's, um, Sleets. I don't know if I can name all of them. Nor Normans. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, our next stop in Michigan is another place I call home, Metro Detroit, to experience American ingenuity on display at the Henry Ford. What Henry Ford wanted people to see is this is a museum not of automobiles, but of American innovation. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans, and I enjoy listening to the world. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. 
Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I really enjoy listening to the World Footprint radio show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Henry Ford, one of the greatest industrialists of the 20th century and founder of the Ford Motor Company, reflected American ingenuity. In Dearborn, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, is the home of the Ford Motor Company and so is one of the great repositories of American history and artifacts in the Henry Ford and Greenfield Village. Lara Laws of the Henry Ford introduces this American treasure. Well, welcome. This is our grand exhibit hall here. This is about nine acres of exhibit space. If you notice the floor, it is a teakwood floor. It is the largest teakwood floor of anywhere in the world. It was one of the more expensive items when Henry Ford built the museum. Uh, Henry Ford was hoping to build a museum that people could learn by seeing and doing. Henry Ford was uh, very meticulous in his restoration of things. Henry Ford wanted a building when he built this that was uniquely American. His architects had, had studied the plans of the Independence Hall in Philadelphia and they said, Mr. Ford, it's got a lot of flaws in it, but don't worry, we can fix that. He said, no, you don't. You build it exactly the same. So it is an exact replica of Independence Hall, flaws and all. What Henry Ford wanted people to see is this is a museum not of automobiles, but of American innovation. This is um, our quadricycle. This is Henry Ford's very first car, 1896. Tinkered with this, built this in his shed in his backyard. We have a replica of it down in Greenfield Village. So uh, he had eventually sold the car, and then when he got a little more uh, solvent after he started Ford Motor Company in 1903, he went back and bought it back. And so it's it's uh, been here since we've opened the museum in 1929. One of the significant collections of the Henry Ford is its collection of American presidential limousines. Now these Uh, these are the cars that we get asked most about here. They're probably the most famous. This is actually the Reagan limousine. Uh, this car is very heavy. Weighs approximately 13,000 pounds. Very heavy. Uh, matter of fact, we took it out for repair a while back, and we asked the gentleman, can it fit on the ramp? Can it, you know, can it handle the ramp? Uh, and, of course, the ramp broke. Uh, uh, but it is armor-plated. Uh, They've had specials on Discovery Channel and, and, and History Channel about these cars. Uh, believe it or not, I never did believe it till I actually saw it on one of those documentaries. Uh, you can roll a stick of dynamite under this car. It'll blow up. The car will move, but it will not damage the car. It has bullet-resistant glass. The tires are puncture-proof. Uh, the gas tank is, you know, not, uh, you can't tamper with it. Uh, it... It's, um, it's pretty amazing. You can take a high-piled rifle and shoot it into the, the door or the, pa the quarter panel, and by the time it gets to the other side, it just makes a little dent, and if you open it up, 
the bullet has shattered. So that's how um, powerful and heavy these cars are. And actually what happened to that was the bullet actually ricocheted off the bullet resistant and it, it hit him. And so the car that was supposed to protect him actually hurt him. So uh, they kind of tossed him in the car. Uh, the Secret Service man was here interviewed one day here for a special. They kind of tossed him in the car and, and took him. And, of course, Mr. Reagan was joking. You know, he told his wife that he forgot to duck. So he was pretty pretty brave. We acquired all five of these uh, four motorized vehicles and a horse-drawn vehicle. Ford Motor Company had leased these to the president. And uh, when the lease was up, they retired them, and Secret Service gave them to us. Uh, gave them to Ford Motor Company, who then in turn gave them to us. We've got a special relationship with Ford Motor Company, obviously. So uh, we received these, but that's where a lot of people say, why do you see that? You won't see these too much anymore out in display. The presidential limousines are destroyed. Uh, They're blown up. They're crushed. They're shot at. They want to see what they can handle and how they can change it to improve the safety of the president. If you notice, though, what I found really fascinating on this, we have a seal there. And I was always told that there was, there's not supposed to be a seal on a car unless the president is in it, unless it's being used by the president, or it's a decoy. And we got special permission from the White House to put that seal on here. Each presidential seal is a little bit different. The next car is probably our most famous car. Uh, People cannot believe we have it here. Uh, This is the Kennedy limousine. This is the limousine President Kennedy was sitting in when he was assassinated. It's a 1961 Lincoln. Yes, it was a convertible. After the president was shot, uh, they decided they better take it back and uh, make it a little more safe for the president. So they put the hard top on it. They put other safety features on it. The only thing that President Johnson requested was that it, paint, it was painted black because it was actually a midnight blue, which a lot of people don't realize that. This is our bubble top. This is Eisenhower's bubble top, 1950. Uh, This was used from 1950 to 1967. These cars are interchanged. A lot of times they're used for parades. This was actually here at the museum, retired. And when they had a big parade, and Mr. Kennedy and the men were going to drive in the 1961 Lincoln, uh, the ladies didn't want to drive in the convertible because it messed up their bouffant hairdos. So Mrs. Kennedy requested this to come out of retirement. It went out of retirement. They took it to Washington, and it stayed there until 1967. And then it was uh, brought back here for retirement. This is probably my favorite presidential uh, limousine. This is Sunshine Special. This is the first car built specifically for a president. They had about five pages of of notes that they wanted. And, of course, it was for uh, FDR. And, of course, FDR had bad legs from polio. He loved this car because he could sit in the car and people could come up to him and visit with him and he did not have to get out of the car. And he loved it. And you can see the picture of him here. Matter of fact, I was... You could tell I'm, I'm a history buff. I was watching the History Channel, and they were talking about World War II. They were talking about the talks that Win, uh, Winston Churchill and uh, Stalin and FDR had, and they showed him arriving in this car. I'm going, oh, it's the Sunshine Special. <laughs> so uh, this is the car, and as I said, this is the first car built specifically for a president, and they had quite a few notes. They, after, after Pearl Harbor, they went back, and they redid a lot of the safety things so that uh, it was even more safe for the president. But, you know, he's riding around in a convertible. Yeah. You know, we decided after President Kennedy that's probably not a real good thing. 
Yeah, it's a 12-cylinder Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, this is our last uh, presidential vehicle. This is Teddy Roosevelt Brome. Uh, this, uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't particularly like cars. Uh, this is actually, uh, he's actually the first president to ride a car, from what I understand. And he didn't particularly like cars. He thought they were noisy and smelly, opposed to horses. So, uh, <laughs> he liked horses. He was kind of a, a nature guy. And it was used until 1928. And in 1928, they retired it, but they used it to bring groceries back and forth uh, to the White House. Uh, so it stayed in use for quite a while. From the presidential limousines to all sorts of cars, the Henry Ford has the cars that change the lives of regular people, like the Model T. And over here is a Model T. The Model Ts, of course, change the world. You'll learn a little bit more about that when you go into the village. Uh, if you ever come back, you can actually take a ride in one of our vintage Model Ts. We have a whole fleet. And what a lot of people don't realize is, yes, they did have come in different colors uh, before the moving assembly line. Uh, we have a, a beautiful bright red one back in the back of the museum. This is a, a, a sedan, more or less. And uh, what makes the Model T unique is it's very simply, simply put together. We actually have, over in that section, an area where you can actually set up. We, we take apart a Model T every morning and our mechanics help our visitors put it back together every day. By 2 o'clock, it is completed. People can come in and sit down and, ha- and take their picture. So it's completely taken apart right to the chassis in the morning. Uh, they come in about 8.30. They got it completely taken apart by 9.30, and then they put it back together. And sometimes along the way, even the infamous would write to Henry Ford to tell him how much they liked Ford motor cars. This is... A letter written to Henry Ford from Clyde Barrow, Bonnie and Clyde. He also got one from John Dillinger. And they were writing him, complimenting him on his V8s. Uh, Because, of course, the lawmen are still driving their little six-cylinders, their Model Ts. And these guys are stealing these V8s. And they go like crazy. Uh, They could go very fast in these. And you have to remember, in the 1930s, what part of the problem was in the United States is we did not have the FBI as we know it today. So if you crossed state line, city line, those policemen couldn't chase you anymore. So these guys would steal these cars and go like crazy. And he writes to Henry Ford, Dear sir, while I still got breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively whenever I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skin. And even if my business hasn't been strictly legal, it don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you have in the V8. Yours truly, Clyde Champion Barrel. I, I don't know what Mr. Ford thought about this, but he did save pretty well every piece of paper he ever owned. So the Henry Ford has a special artifact that reflects social change and innovation. The bus that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on, which launched the Montgomery bus boycotts and the American Civil Rights Movement. Rosa Parks left Montgomery for Detroit in 1965 to work for Congressman John Conyers in Detroit. Rosa Parks died in Detroit at the age of 92 in 2005. Her place in American history secured, as is the bus at the Henry Ford. Then we have the Rosa Parks bus here. This is the actual bus that Mrs. Parks refused to give her seat up on, uh, December 1st, 1955. We let our visitors come aboard. Uh, We play a, a tape for them. They can actually hear Mrs. Parks say in her own words exactly Uh, how she felt that day and what happened to her. That seat is right there. She sat right on the aisle. 
Uh, what a lot of people don't realize in Montgomery, they did it a little bit different than they did in other areas because 70% were riders were black, and so they couldn't just cram them all in. So these seats forward were white only. Where she sat, she was legal to sit, but the problem was is there was a white man that was standing, and so everybody from those the the four people from those seats had to get up and move, and that's when she refused. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, we'll visit Greenfield Village to learn about the inspirations and influences of Henry Ford. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've traveled all over the world. Whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. I have a dream today. Hi, I'm Isaac Newton Ferris Jr., President and CEO of the King Center in Atlanta. My Uncle Martin's words still inspire us today, but his vision cannot be fully realized unless we join together to strengthen our communities through everyday acts of service to others. Honor his memory this King Day and throughout the year by volunteering in your community. This message brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service, the King Center, NAB, and this station. Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones, and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. I love listening to the World Footprints radio show online. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Greenfield Village, part of the Henry Ford, tells the story of Henry Ford and American ingenuity through the buildings of the people, places, and things that inspired and influenced the life of Henry Ford and his wife, Clara. And behind every building on the grounds of Greenfield Village is a story, as our guide, Dan Schneider, tells us in his own words. My name is Dan. These two fine horses ahead of me are Mark and Max. Welcome to Greenfield Village, this very special place we call Greenfield Village. Mark and Max are a team of Percheron horses, by the way. They are not Clyde Seals. Most people think that all big horses are Clyde Seals. These two big guys are Percheron, which is a French breed of draft horse. We're going to take you uh, uh, to take a good look at Greenfield Village. On the way, I'd like to kind of set the scene for you, because there never was a town called Greenfield Village that was renovated here in place. This was empty land in 1920. The Fords had just finished renovating Henry Ford's birthplace, which is right ahead here on the right, the white home you see on the right. That, at that point, they enjoyed the, the renovation process so much, they decided to add buildings to their collection of other things. Those other things like cars and trains and dishes and clothing all over in the, our 12-acre museum next door. One by one, they selected the building, folks, but remember, not just randomly selected. Each building was either built here, about a third of them built here, or brought here, about two-thirds brought here from as far away as England. Not randomly, uh, not randomly selected, but specifically selected, because each of the buildings had a particular meaning, either to Henry Ford or to his wife Clara, or they would not be here. 
Now that could be the person who lived there, that person's reputation, their occupation. Something was important enough to disassemble that particular barn. Board by board, nail by nail, floor joists, rafters, everything taken apart and brought here to Greenfield Village. So to go through that much trouble and that much expense, let's take a look at what we have here. See another one of our omnibuses coming toward us. The omnibus is what you're riding in right now. These were invented in Europe in the very early 1800s and then refined and refined through that 19th century. So by the late 1880s or 1890s, this is what you would have used for public transportation when you're traveling around within the city limits of major American cities. Now I mentioned each of the each of the buildings had a special meaning, either to Henry or to Claire Ford. The building on our left with the black windows would be a very good example of that. That is a replica building. That is a quarter-sized replica of the first power plant in the city of Detroit. Now that alone would have been important enough for Henry Ford to want it here at the village. But that building had a personal meaning to Henry Ford. Because in 1893, Henry Ford took a job there as engineer, and his boss and the owner, who just happened to be Thomas Edison. That is how two famous men met and became best, best friends. Again, the way two famous men met and became best, best friends was at the Edison Illuminating Company. So, Thomas, so Henry Ford worked for Thomas Edison. That is how two famous men met and became best friends. That is why that building was ultra-important for Henry Ford to have that here in Greenfield Village. Up there. So many of our buildings have these wonderful personal stories to go with them. The, the little train station here on my left is a good example of that. When Thomas Edison was a young boy, 11, 12, 13 years old, he actually published a small newspaper. He used to sell it on the trains passing through Smith's Creek on their way from Detroit up into the Thumma, Michigan, to Port Huron. Well, one day he left a chemistry experiment brewing in the baggage car while he went to sell his papers, and guess what? It blew up and set the whole baggage car on fire. He was thrown off on his ear at Smith's Creek Depot. Later in life, he shared that story with his good buddy, Henry Ford. Henry Ford said, we can fix this. He went to Smith's Creek and he bought the depot. Brought it back here and set it up. And when Thomas Edison and his family came for the grand opening of Greenfield Village, he had them brought back in through the same station he'd been thrown off as a boy. So, so many of these buildings have these wonderful personal stories that go with them. Yep, boy. Yep. On our left now is the Village Green. And what Henry Ford wanted a place for people to gather to socialize, uh, to play games, uh, maybe for weddings, things like that. This is a typical New England model. Typical New England model, no buildings except only buildings accessible to the public, no private residences anywhere around the village green. Get there. Town hall here to our right, a little block by the tent here. We're set up for ragtime festival. And the little Phoenixville post office here on our right, Connecticut. Greenfield Village, who Greenfield Village does have its own postmark and its own zip code. So people can send mail from here home. Get there. Mark Max. Now I mentioned that many of the buildings have these wonderful personal stories. The buildings on our right, I'll stop for just a second, are a real good example of that. I mentioned that Henry Ford worked for Thomas Edison. Edison, being 16 years older than Ford, was already established in business by the two men met. So he then could mentor Ford on how to establish his businesses. I'm sure he's looking down and wondering what the heck's going on, though, because uh, Thomas Edison wanted Henry Ford to go with electric cars. So he must be wondering uh, what, what happened in the process here. Because Edison was older than Ford, he then, as I said, could mentor Ford. So because of all the guidance and the friendship and the mentorship that Ford received from Edison, Ford wanted this cluster of buildings here on the right to be the central or focal point of Greenfield Village. These are Thomas Edison's laboratory buildings from Menlo Park, New Jersey. Now when Ford was going to bring those here, he told Edison he was going to do that. And Edison jokingly said, you can't do that. And he said, why not? He said, because those buildings are New Jersey buildings. They have to stand on New Jersey soil. Well, Henry Ford was not about to be bested by his friend Tom Edison, so he called a contractor in New Jersey. 
He had seven train cars filled up with dirt in New Jersey and brought here and spread down on the ground. He said, now I have New Jersey soil, now I can have the buildings. I tell that story to show what a special friendship it was between the two men. They played games, they played tricks on each other. They were just, they were born 16 years apart and they died 16 years apart, both three and fourth years. They both had wonderful homes here in the metropolitan Detroit area, as well as neighboring estates down at Fort Myers, and the Fort Myers Laboratory of Thomas Edison is also up here. So again, these are his laboratory buildings from Menlo Park, New Jersey. The light, the light bulbs you see in the, the lampposts here are the type that Edison developed for his public lighting exhibit, December 31st, 1879, the first public lighting exhibit anywhere in the world. And it's the 50th anniversary of that. In 1929, the Henry Ford was celebrating when he dedicated Greenfield Village to his good friend, Tom Edison. The home on our left is the Sarah Jordan boarding house. This is where Thomas Edison's young workers stayed, his single workers stayed. Uh, while they were working in his laboratories here. That is also from Menlo Park, New Jersey. Ahead and on the left, you see a small gray building. That is uh, Thomas Edison's uh, Fort Myers Laboratory. That was the first building to be brought into Greenville Village. Now, that seems pretty small. It doesn't seem like that'd be hard to move it. But again, think about how they were moved back in those days, folks. Every board comes off, every nail comes off. Everything totally disassembled in numbered and letters. So even a small building like this to bring in from Florida was quite a chore. This is Mrs. Fisher's on the left. Uh, Abby Fisher was an uh, African-American woman. She had a, a freed slave. She was the first African-American woman to, to publish a cookbook, and they used some of her original recipes right here at, this, at the uh, State Street Lunchstand. If you look across the road to the right, you see a big Ford sign. That is the Ford Proving Grounds. That was originally Henry Ford's airport. Henry Ford had the first paved airport of any airport in the world. Down the hill to the right is our Henry Ford Academy. A Greenfield Village actually opened not as a museum, but opened as a school back in 1929. That school stayed open until 1959. Then in 1997, down the hill here, we opened a charter high school for grades 9 through 12. Uh, academically, very, very good school. Uh, many people choose not to attend only because it, they, it does not have a lot of sports to offer. Very high graduation rate uh, and very high percentage of people who go on to some type of higher education. One of Henry greatest traits was his sense of loyalty. If he liked you, he really let it be known. The two of his favorite people's homes are here on the right. George Matthew Adams' home here in the green screen. That was one of Henry Ford's favorite columnists. He wrote a columnist called a daily column called Today's Talk. And Henry Ford used many of those ideas in developing his company. The next building ahead is the John Chapman House, Henry Ford's favorite teacher's home. Henry Ford had only six years of formal education. He spent his time with his teacher, John Chapman. The next two homes are very important to them. This is the McGuffey School on our left, and ahead the McGuffey Birthplace. The reason I say they are important is because the very first things the Fords collected, rather than buildings or cars or trains or anything, the first things they collected were books. Those were the first editions of the McGuffey Reader, which you probably heard of. They were one of the first truly American textbooks. Ahead on our left is the Scott Settlement School. That was the first school Henry Ford attended as a boy, and therefore we used it as the first classroom when we opened here at Greenfield Village in 1929 as a school for 32, 4th, 5th, and 6th graders. On our left, the George Washington Carver Memorial. Not birthplace, but Carver Memorial. George Washington Carver and Henry Ford became personal friends in 1937 when Henry Ford held, held what was called a Chemergy Conference here in Detroit. They met over the soybean. We know George Washington Carver for his work with the, with the peanut, but it's over the soybean. Henry Ford didn't send the soybean that the two met and met and became personal friends. Dr. Howard Ford's house on the left. The country doctor that Henry Ford very much respected because he was willing to look at both 
and both traditional medicine but also herbal and native medicine. Again, Henry Ford really was into people who were very open-minded. Now I direct your attention back down to the chapel on our right. This is the Martha Mary Chapel. This is where Clara put her foot down with Henry and she said, oh, no, Henry, everything we have either has the Ford name for it or your name for it on it. Time that my family gets their name for it on something. So that's right here we have the Martha Mary Chapel instead of the Mary Martha Chapel. Martha Bench Bryant was the mother of Clara Bryant Ford. Mary Letigo Ford was the mother of Henry Ford. We have weddings nearly every weekend out of the year. September and June weddings are very often scheduled two years in advance because they are very popular. Popular times for weddings here. On the right, folks, is the Graham Jewelry Shop. Now, that's an interesting place. Henry Ford had a real fascination with watches. His father gave him a watch, a pocket watch when he was 12. He could take it apart and put it together almost in his sleep. He actually did a second apprenticeship here uh, in the Grimm Jewelry Shop on our right. Uh, they said later in life you could see the billionaire Henry Ford at the Grimm Jewelry Shop in the front taking watches. On our right now is a, a quarter-sized replica of Henry Ford's first successful automobile company. It was a 1903 uh, Model E. This, this was what I call stationary assembly, where they, where they, they framed stayed stationary and they brought all the parts to it. Compared to Henry Ford's moving assembly line uh, that he started in 1913, that is what eventually brought car made cars affordable for people like you and I. The original Model T built in the 1908-1909 year was uh, $850, which most people could not afford. By 1923, with mass production, the price of that car had been brought down to 300 and most people were making $5 a day, so they could actually afford a car if they were careful. I mentioned the, the personal stories that many of the buildings had, and I draw your attention to the little building here on our right. This building, notice, notice the two sized doors here on the right. What happened here, this was on rental property. When Henry and Clara were first married, they rented a flat, and this building was at the back of the property, and the landlord told Henry he could tinker with his, with his tools back there. So this is where Henry Ford built his first car. There's actually a model of it in there called the 1896 quadricycle. Well, Henry Ford, what he did is he built the car, but he built it inside the building. So guess what? He couldn't get it out. The door was too small. So he had to knock down part of the wall. He thought this was going to be upsetting to the landlord. Instead, the landlord said, Henry, why don't you just make the door big enough to drive the car in and out? So Henry Ford jokingly said this became America's first garage complete with garage door. Again, this is Henry Ford's birthplace on the left. He was born in one of the upper rooms of this house in 1863, July the 30th. Uh, this is our last, our last stop before we get to the front, the Loringer Gristmill on our right here. This was an inspiration for Henry Ford to, to start his uh, moving assembly line. He had been to Chicago and seen the sides of beef moving through the slaughterhouses so efficiently that one person could operate on many of them at the same time. He then came to the Loringer Gristmill, which was down near Monroe, Michigan. Here he saw that once the mill was up and running for the day, one person could handle all of the processes. So here was things on the move again. This then was inspiration for him. He said if they can do this with, with sides of beef, they can do this with, 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 with uh, bags of grain, why couldn't I do this with So he actually started his moving assembly line originally with a magneto, a very small part of his cars, and eventually remember it's his moving assembly line that made cars accessible to people like you and I. Okay, because they became so much cheaper. By the, <laughs> by the 1920s, by the way, 19, about 1923, 50% of the cars in the world, in the world, were heading towards Model T cars. 60% of the cars in the USA. So, moving assembly line has really, really made it possible for people like you and I to get our own cars. That was a significant, real significant to Henry Ford. Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile, remember. There were automobiles before him. 
what he did was make this his most significant report and reported that he made it possible for you and I to have a car. After the break, it's the last stop on our Michigan journey as we visit the Etzel and Eleanor Ford house to see what life was like in one of the grand homes of the auto barons. But you know, the Fords didn't promote their house as a sleepover. They really enjoyed their privacy and they liked to keep it just family. So Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi. My name's Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Aloha! This is Danielle. Caleb. Mika. Calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. We love World Footprints Radio! You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Our last stop in Michigan is the Detroit suburb of Gross Point and the Etzel and Eleanor Ford House. From its immaculate grounds to its stately architecture, the home of Henry and Clara Ford's only son, Etzel, and his wife, Eleanor, reflects a high point of design, architecture, and decorative arts few get to experience. But we'll give you a flavor of what it was like to live in an auto baron's home with the help of Mary Fishwick. Who designed the home? The home was designed by Albert Kahn. A lot of homes in the Detroit area and buildings, businesses. What Mr. and Mrs. Ford had done was to travel, and they fell in love with the Cotswold uh, style. So they took Albert Kahn back with them. They brought many, many pictures, postcards, everything that they liked about the homes. And he was able to design exactly what they wanted in their home. And what they wanted in their house blended the best of Cotswold and English Manor design. front side of the house is all very much in the Cotswold style. It looks like little cottages all put together. But when you come around to this side of the house, it's very much a different feel. It looks very much more like a traditional English manor home. The original roof did come from England. Uh, About four or five years ago, it needed to be replaced. So Britain wasn't giving up their stone that easily. So this all came over from France. Cost of the house originally was three point two million to build in nineteen between twenty seven and twenty nine and the roof alone cost three million to replace. As we go inside the house, our first stop is the gallery room, a place of great art and antiquities. It is the largest room in the house. It's about fifteen hundred square feet. And this room reflects Mr. and Mrs. Ford's love of uh, antiquities, of fine art, and of fine craftsmanship. The paneling and the fireplace in this room are 16th century pieces. The ceiling is all hand-carved plaster. The stained glass medallions in the windows are 13th to the 15th century English pieces taken from various manor homes. The oldest artifact in this room is the wine jar in the middle of the octagon table in the middle of the room. And that is from the Han Dynasty. It's about a little over 2,000 years old. The family didn't use this room on a daily basis. This was for entertaining. 
What they would do is remove all of the furniture and roll up the carpets, and this was a wonderful dance floor. And when Henry II turned 21, Frank Sinatra and Tommy Dorsey were playing right in that bay window. The room was great not just for the dance floor, but the doors there to the left lead out to the apple court. And the family would tent that area so their guests were comfortable, but it was a good traffic flow room. They could keep people moving from here outside back into the drawing room. That is a 1920s Steinway reproducing piano. It is like a player plays a role, but somehow they're able to capture the nuances of the actual piano, so it's not as flat a sound. This room is the drawing room, and this is the most formal room in the house. And if you had been invited to the Fords, Mr. Sellers, the butler, would have brought you down the same steps we came down, and Mr. and Mrs. Ford would be waiting in the bay window to greet you. Mrs. Ford redecorated this in the mid-50s. She chose primarily French furnishings, French rouge marble for the fireplace, and she changed the sconces and chandeliers to French rock crystal. And the French theme was to go with the Impressionist and post-Impressionist paintings they had been collecting. On the far wall to your left are two original Cezannes. The watercolor is kettle and fruit. The oil over the settee is Mount Saint-Victoire. And further down that same wall past the door is a reproduction of Degas' Dancers in Blue. And that was given to youngest son William Clay. That is still in his collection today. And then behind you, another beautiful reproduction of Renoir's The Cup of Chocolate. That was originally given to oldest son, Henry. As we leave the drawing room, one can envision the great parties that were hosted there by the Fords. And a few famous guests got to stay there on those rare occasions. Henry Kissinger, I know, was here. Um, Melda Marcos was here once. They had, Van Clyburn was here. There were, there were a, lot of, a lot of names. But, you know, the Fords didn't promote their house as a sleepover. Yeah. They really enjoyed their privacy and they liked to keep it just family. So they only had originally two guest rooms when the house was open or when the house was uh, brand new. So that kind of discouraged people from spending too yeah. much time. This is of course the dining room. Paneling in this room is also 18th century. This is some of the most intricately carved paneling in the house though. If you look up at the door mantles, you can see how beautifully carved that is. And then if you look up at the hand-carved ceiling, you can see again how it duplicates that floral pattern. And this room is unique for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's no chandelier. Mrs. Ford felt that the most flattering light for dining was candlelight, so she didn't allow electric lights in here. It's also unique in that this is the only room in the house the family took any meals. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner were all had in here. And the small table at the front of the room is the children's table. Until the children reached the age of 12, they sat there with their governess, Mademoiselle Tagant, and she taught them their table manners. The children would eat their evening meal about 6.30. Boys were to be in suits and ties. Josephine was to be in a dress. And when the Fords dined alone, they ate about 7.30. And they did not like to sit end to end. They liked to sit next to each other. So they sat at the two middle chairs that faced the fireplace. And Mrs. Ford had a small button concealed under the carpet near her chair. If anything was needed through the course of the meal, she'd just step on the button. Mr. Sellers would come from the butler's pantry and see to whatever was needed. The table is set right now for 10, but this table can be extended to seat 26. It can also be broken apart into five separate tables, and they would do that if they were having a buffet supper. Sometimes when the extended family came for Christmas time, they were scattered throughout the house because it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
As we head to the study, we get a portrait of Etzel Ford's life outside of the office. This is Mr. Ford's study. This was his favorite room in the house. This is where he'd bring the gentlemen after dinner for brandy and cigars. He didn't use this room as an office, though. This was a retreat from the office. When he was home, he just wanted to relax and enjoy his free time. Kept his desk small intentionally, so he couldn't do any work at it. He used it only for correspondence. He was a wonderful auto designer, of course, but he was a very talented artist as well. In the back corner right behind you is one of his own bas-reliefs. I do want to point out this flag here to the left. This was given to Mr. Ford by Admiral Richard Byrd, and this is the flag that was flown over the South Pole on that expedition. Picture of Admiral Byrd right next to it. And in the middle of the wall is a picture of son Henry II marching down Woodward Avenue here in Detroit in his naval uniform in 1941. When Henry was called home from the service in 1943 to help run Ford Motor Company when his father passed away, and then he was named president in 1945. And he was largely credited with Ford's revitalization after World War II. There's also a picture right next to that one of Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford with their brand new Model A. (laughs) Now that our tour of the first floor of the home is complete, let's head upstairs as we learn more about this iconic family. The the portraits that we passed on our way up, I just wanted to mention this first one on the right, Mrs. Ford in her early 30s, which is about how old she was when the family moved into this house. On the left is her mother, Eliza Hudson Clay. She was the sister of J.L. Hudson, who was a co-founder of Hudson Motor Car Company, but he also owned a chain of department stores in Detroit, which are uh, now all Macy's stores. Now behind us, a portrait done. This is a reproduction. This was done by Diego Rivera, 1932 of Mr. Ford, shown with the tools of his trade, his design tools in front, 32 Deuce Coupe on the chalkboard behind him. And he was voted best dressed man in America in 1935. Beat out Fred Astaire that year. (laughs) Our first stop, the boys' bedroom. And yes, Mrs. Ford made her boys share the room. Originally, this was Henry and Benson's room. But when Henry moved across the hall, then William Clay moved in from down the hall. So there were always two boys in this room. Mrs. Ford felt that if the boys didn't bond as children, they weren't going to bond as adults. So she made sure they had to share a room. This room and the adjoining room are the last two designed by Walter Derwin T., still 1936. All the metal in these two rooms is copper. There's a good use of space with the seating arrangement in one side. The other alcove has a desk for schoolwork. Don't feel too sorry for these poor boys having to share. They do get the boys study next door. So when they got on each other's nerves, they could separate. (laughs) They also had another desk here so they could separate to do schoolwork. And if friends came to spend the night, they'd sleep in this room. The family relied heavily on Judith DeGaunt to care for the children, and she had a strategic bedroom that allowed her to keep an eye on the four children. Mademoiselle Judith Tagant's room. She was French and she was from Switzerland. She came to live with the family in 1917 when Henry was born. She stayed until 39 when William went away to boarding school. But then Josephine married in 43, so she moved in with her and helped her set up her household and took care of Josephine's children till her own passing. Dedicated her entire life to the Ford family. She didn't marry, she didn't have children of her own. She was very well loved by the family. 
very well respected by the staff, and she is the only staff member to live on the family side of the house. She's placed strategically between the two youngest children. She's also at the head of the stairs. When the family lived here, there was no carpeting on the stairs, so there was no sneaking past Mademoiselle. She could hear what they were up to at all times. One of the unique features of the family's living quarters were the interconnected rooms, a necessary feature for security, as we learned from Mary. You notice from the time we went in the boys' bedroom until we came out of Josephine's bedroom, we never had to go back out into the hallway. And all the rooms were interconnected for security purposes. This was still about three or four years before the Lindbergh kidnapping, but there were still very real threats to the family. And the area we're coming into now is the Ford suite. This first room is Mrs. Ford's sitting room. She did use this room as an office. She liked to meet with her staff upstairs, took care of all of her correspondence up here. But in her later years, this was just a very peaceful, calming room to her, so she spent a great deal of time up here. Close friends always came up to visit her instead of making her go down to them. And she also said the dining room was pretty big for one person, so she took some meals up here as well. To the right of the fireplace is an original Redon called Flowers in a Blue Vase. And over the sofa to the left is an original Matisse called Anemones. As the tour concludes with a stop at Etzel and Eleanor's bedroom, we can appreciate how different the times in their lives were. He did have separate beds. <laughs> this is the room that Edsel and Eleanor shared from 1929 until his passing in 43. And it was designed that, so they would get the morning sun over the lake, then the afternoon sun over the lagoon, and the setting sun over the apple court. And the roof there is of the gallery where we started our tour. The room was not this feminine when Mr. Ford was alive. Mrs. Ford did this also in the mid-50s. She remained alone in this house for 33 years after her husband passed away. There was staff, but there was no family living here. She was still a very active part, of course, of her family's life, and thankfully of the greater Detroit community as well. We're going to walk through their marble and 24-karat gold-plated bathroom. Even the plumbing pipes are gold-plated. This is Mrs. Ford's dressing room. And originally, Mr. Ford did share this, so it also was not this feminine when he was alive. She redid it when she did the bedroom. And the dressing table is a Louis XV, and the chandelier is a Louis XVI. And the chandelier was the inspiration piece for all of the hand-painted closet doors in the room. And all the designs are different. And there are 14 closet doors. We go back out into the alcove. But when Mrs. Ford was ready to leave for the day, she could open these three mirrors into a trifold. She could check herself out from all angles. Yeah. When she looked just the way she wanted, she'd push the button by the door on her way out. And that would alert Mr. Sellers to have the front door open and Mr. Fowler, the chauffeur, to have the car door open. So she'd walk down the stairs and into her car. In her later years, though, she was upset to see what was happening. In this area, some of these major homes were falling into disrepair. Some were just being torn down. Mm -hmm. So that's why she wanted to make sure this house was protected for future generations to enjoy. We hope you enjoyed our Michigan Homecoming show today. And as always, we look forward to spending quality travel time with you and connecting with you during the week on our social networks from our website, worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprint.
Conference Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.